2 Samuel chapter 7 tonight. It opens up, and, and it's a, a little bit of an interesting scene because it opens up, and, and David is having a little bit of a, a a guilt party with himself, right? He's he's looking around, and he's built this beautiful palace, this beautiful home for himself. And you'll remember the king of Tyre helped by supplying the materials that he needed to build this palace. And David finds himself in the palace, and as the text says, and 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, God had given rest to Israel. So he didn't have the, the pesty uh, Philistines hanging around and, and bugging him and, and trying to, to defeat him anymore. He didn't have the, the civil war going on between him and the house of Saul anymore. And so there was peace and David was looking around and, and the thought came to his mind and he said, well, wait a minute, I'm in this grandiose, magnificent palace and the Ark of the Covenant, which represented again, what, the, the presence of God, right? is residing in a, a tent. And it's not as though that was a, a demeaning thing. It, it had long resided in a tent. If you remember all the way back in, in Exodus, the ark was transported with the Israelites and it resided in the tabernacle, in the tent with the Israelites. And so it went to and fro and it was really the, the perfect venue for the ark because Israel was, was a, a nomadic people group during the, the 40 years of wandering. So there was no place to set up a permanent residence for the house of God, for the, the ark to reside in at that time. But now that, that Israel was experiencing rest from all of her enemies, David found himself in his palace looking around saying, this is not right. How can I have this and yet God be in a tent? And so David here has this view that, that God might be in need of a little help. And so David calls Nathan, his trusted confidant and the the prophet that was serving at the time and Nathan came before David and and David said to Nathan hey I've got this idea I've got this house let's build a house for God and, and Nathan initially says what man that's a great idea without really consulting God on that why would Nathan think that that was a great idea well in that culture in that context a, a king wasn't considered worthy, wasn't considered powerful, wasn't considered glorious or majestic until he had his palace. The palace was that symbol of prestige and power and glory. And likewise, a god was not thought of as being anything significant or mighty or great or wonderful until that god had its temple. You remember the Philistines had their temple to all their gods, the, the god of Dagon, right, that fell down before the ark multiple times. And, and so Nathan, as a prophet of God, is thinking as David is saying, we need to build a house for the Lord. Yes, this is a good thing. Let's do that. But then God responds to Nathan and says, Nathan, you should have come to me first. And God responds and he says, basically he says, you need to go back to him. And he says in verse eight, now therefore you shall say thus to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. So in a, a gentle way, I don't think David was sinful in his desire to build a, a palace, not at all. But in a gentle way, God is putting David in his place, so to speak. He's reminding him that, you know what, David, that's, that's a nice sentiment, but I really don't have any need from you. In fact, let me remind you, I'm the one who took you from the sheepfold. I took you from the, the, the fields. Your dad didn't even think highly enough of, of you to, to have you line up as one of the candidates to be king. And yet I, I still sought you out. I still found you. I made you who you are today. In verse 9, I've been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name. And think about that for a second. 
That's a, a promise that at that moment was somewhat realized, but it was still future. Today is the name of David, the, the Davidic name of, of King David from Israel. Is, is that a great name in, in today's circles? Yes, it is, isn't it? God has fulfilled that promise to David. He has made David a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is interesting, isn't it? Because Israel's already in the land. They're already settled. They already are planted. They already do have rest from all their enemies. Second Samuel 7 verse 1 says that. So what is God talking about? Is he's promising David that he's going to give them rest for their enemies. Is he, he's going to plant them and he's going to make sure that, that they're secure and that there's never been a time where they've been that undisturbed from the time of the judges onward. What is God talking about here? He's anticipating a yet future existence for Israel. A future Davidic king that will reign over Israel. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And there it is. That's where God turns the tables on David. David begins by saying, God, I need to make you a house. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to make you a house. And in the rest of the Davidic covenant, as it unfolds, he promises that he's going to raise up an offspring after David. And initially that offspring is Solomon. And he says, I will build a house for myself through Solomon. And, and sure enough, Solomon would end up doing that. But more than that, God promises David that he will have a house in the sense of a dynasty. You will have an unending reign on the Davidic throne, that, that there will always be somebody reigning on the throne of David. And your house and your kingdom, in verse 16, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So that's the, the technical side of the Davidic covenant. But as I was preparing this me message, even before the events of any of the, the past week happened, I found myself drawn more to the, the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 7. To David's response. And when David responds to this amazing covenant or royal, it's, it's really in the language of a royal grant, of a king granting his servant something, bestowing upon his servant gifts. And that's really the, the way that this is technically drawn out in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But as David reflects on this, he responds how? He responds in prayer, doesn't he? He goes to the Lord beginning in verse 18 and he says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that brought me thus far? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You can imagine David, can't you? Reeling from hearing everything that, that Nathan had just prophesied over him from the, the word of God. And he's sitting back, and I have to imagine that David's life just went through his mind at that point. That he went through and kind of rolled through the Rolodex of his life at that point. The son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah. The youngest of eight brothers, the runt of the litter. Like I said earlier, he wasn't even called into the picture when Samuel showed up and said, Hey, God's going to anoint somebody from this house to be the next king of Israel. He's left out with the sheep. And yet he's brought in and Samuel says, yes, this is the one. And he anoints David. And then David goes in and serves before Saul. And then think about his life from that time forward. And David must have been thinking about going out and, and fighting Goliath. 
and then having his, his place in the court of Saul, and then everything that went on between him and Saul, and running from his life, and his relationship with Jonathan, and, and fearing for his life, and, and taking shelter with the Philistines. And then after all that was said and done, and Saul was dead, having the civil war between him and, and Ishbosheth, and then finally, once and for all, being installed as, as the king of Israel. And yet still, as he hears this message, he must have been just overwhelmed at everything that God had done through his life. And now, on top of everything that he had already done, there was more that God was promising him. He had more in store for the life of David. He had more good and more blessings that he was going to bestow upon David and upon David's house. It's no wonder that David is amazed, that David is overwhelmed, that David is unable to fathom the blessings the Lord had, had bestowed on him, such that he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He continues in verse 19, and he says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And so D David says, not only uh, who am I, Lord, as I consider all the blessings that you've already given me, who am I that you would do more for me? But then he, he's even more blown away because he acknowledges and he confesses that for God, this is a, a small thing. This is no big deal for him. That this is, is, you know, God woke up. He didn't wake up. Sorry, that's heresy, right? God doesn't sleep or slumber. Let me re rewind that. This is a Sunday afternoon for God, right? This is, is no sweat off his brow. This is easy for him, is what David's saying here. He's saying this is, is no big deal at all. He's saying this is a small thing in your eyes. It literally means it's, a, it's insignificant. From our perspective, this is not insignificant. From David's perspective, this was not insignificant. This was monumental. Monumental not just for David's life. This was monumental for world history. Israel. We're talking about the, the people of God. We're talking about the, the Davidic dynasty and everything that that entails. The, the fact that there's still yet a future. We believe and we feel a firm conviction for Israel. That there will be a millennial kingdom set up in which the ultimate Davidic king will reign on it, the literal throne of David for a thousand years. This is eschatological implications. And yet David says rightly that for God, this is no big deal. That this is easy for him. We need to think of rightly about God as we consider all the good and all the blessings that he's brought to our lives. We need to remember that he is the God in Genesis 1-1 that created the heavens and the earth from nothing. We need to remember that he is the, the God in Colossians 1-16 and 17 who through Jesus, it says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We need to remember that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So as we consider our tiny lives, for him to move, for him to bless us, for him to do good, for him to orchestrate the events of our lives, for him to work in our lives is, is a small thing for him. David was in awe. He was astounded. He was humbled at the thought of all that God had done for him. And he starts out, again, I don't think sinfully, but he, he starts out from a position maybe of, of a little bit of pride, thinking, look, everything that, that I have, I need to help God out by building a house for God. And, and God turns the tables on him right away. And he says, look at everything that I'm about to do for you. Tonight, I want to challenge us, encourage us to look around our lives and to see all that we have been given, 
And to embrace the same response that we see in David here. This point number one for us tonight is this. I want us to to humble ourselves. Humble yourself as, as you consider God's blessing in your life. As you consider God's blessings in your life. You know, Pastor Mike says that to pray, God humble me is a dangerous prayer, right? Instead, he should pray, we should pray what? God, I, I'm humbling myself before you. And one of the ways that we can do that is as we do what, what David has done here and we step back and we really take inventory on all the good that God has done in our lives. When we consider all the blessings, when we consider, as David said, you have brought me thus far. What is that in your life? If you were to say, okay, God, you have brought me thus far, how would you fill out that testimony? How would you fill out that biography of where God has brought you, of how far God has brought you in your life? We don't have Nathan showing up on our doorstep to prophesy about all the the blessings of God that he's going to bring to us, but we have this book, don't we? We have God's word that is chock full of the blessings of God that we enjoy, that we receive. And then beyond that, we can all sit here. And if we took the time, we would be here all night and and well into the rest of the week for us to come up one by one and, and recount the way that God has blessed us individually in our lives, the way that he has done good in our lives, the way that he has shown us favor. And yet all too often we are either unaware of these things or we are simply ungrateful for them. But I want to encourage you and challenge you this week specifically to be intentional about thinking about those things and to to allow it to to humble you in front of God, to be in awe of what he's done for you and, and the things that he's given to you. A few ways to do that. Number one, contemplate the blessings that are ours spiritually. That's something that's one of the application questions for us tonight. Ephesians 1, I mean, think about what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 14. All of the blessings that we have in Christ. Contemplate those. Give, give your mind intentional access to those. Dwell on those things. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Again, a, another great passage detailing the, the blessings that we receive. Second, take some time to specifically list the blessings and good things in your life. I mean, sit down, paper and pen, or on your iPhone, open up a notes doc, or on your, your computer, whatever it may be, but, but force yourself to sit down and, and actually create an, a, a real list, a physical list. Think through specifically, okay, God, what are the good things, what are the, the blessings that you've given me right now, specifically, tangibly, in my life? Third, take that list and follow every single one of those blessings back to the Lord. How do they trace back to him? How do they go back to him? That's going to help us make sure that, that we don't begin to want to take credit for those things ourselves. Which leads to number four. Confess any inclination that you might have to take credit for those things. Or to think that you have something that God needs. Fifth. Lastly, feel small. Feel small. And that gets back to this picture of the fact that God is the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything. And yet he chooses by his grace to be that intricately involved in our lives and to give us these good gifts, as James says. We don't know exactly when Psalm 8 was penned or recorded, but I think there's similar sentiments to how David begins in in verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we find in Psalm 8. 
It says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, when we have opportunity to, right? Pastor Elliot talked about that this week, right? The, the light pollution. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's that, that sense of feeling small before the God of creation. How big he is, how magnificent he is. I've felt that even this week, thinking about Pastor Wes, and I've seen you know, Facebook posts pop up over and over again from people that I have no idea who they are, and yet he had a, a dramatic impact in their lives. Man, that makes me feel small about how God used him in, in their lives. It's not that we should feel insignificant, okay? There's a difference there. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. Again, it's the fact that the God of all creation would be that intimately involved in our lives that he would bless us the way that he's blessed us, that he would love us the way that he's loved us. I think that's what Samuel is driving at here. And when we grab this mindset and we start to humble ourselves under the weight of, of the blessings that we have in our lives, it's gonna drive us to worship. And that's exactly what it does with, with David. Pick back up in 2 Samuel and let's look at verses 21 through 24. David said, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there's none like you. There's no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And so David in these verses responds in worship and he begins by referencing the, the promise of God. And I can't help but think that David is perhaps going back to Genesis 12, 3 or Genesis chapter 12 when, when God made that, that covenant promise with Abraham. And now he's extending that covenant promise and developing that covenant promise more through his covenant promises with David. And you'll remember in Genesis 12, 3, God promised Abraham through you, all the nations of the earth will be what? blessed. Well, how did that come to fruition? It came to fruition through Christ, through the descendant of David, right? Through one of David's offspring who would ultimately be the one to fulfill this covenant to its fullest to say that he is the one that's going to sit on the Davidic throne whose kingdom will have no end forever and ever. And so David begins and references that promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. But the other thing David do, is doing here is as he's worshiping God, he's confessing that it's not of anything of, of his own that he's brought to the table that's causing God to do this. That it's God's word and God's will that he is fulfilling, that he is working, that he is doing in all of this of his own accord. And David says, therefore, you are great. There is none like you, no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. What's so great about David's response here is as he moves from contemplating the blessings, he moves to exalting the God who gave him the blessings. And David's prayer is not, look at me, 
right? It's look at my God. Look at everything that my God has promised. Look at everything that, that he has done. He is amazing. He is great. He alone is God. He is worthy to be praised. David understood that he was little more than an instrument for God to display his greatness, his majesty, his power. Again, just like Pastor Elliot preached on this past weekend, we are what? We are walking billboards for God, to, to image God, to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. And David gets that. David doesn't get caught up in all these promises and think, wow, this is going to be amazing. Look at how great my name is going to be. He gets caught up in how great God is going to make his name through all this. And he turns the praise and honor and glory back to God. We find a similar response from Mary in Luke chapter 1, don't we? After the angel visits her. Verse 46 and following. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. She doesn't run off to Elizabeth and be like, hey, oh, look at that. You're pregnant. That's cute. Is that the savior of the world? Because guess what? No, she, she, she worships God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why? Because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary got it. She understood it the same way that David understood it. That God is to be praised for the blessings that he gives us. And so David looks at the Davidic covenant and he looks at these promises, these amazing promises, because in the Davidic covenant, God is promising to do something for him that he said is going to be not like what he did with Saul. I mean, David has to be just utterly blown away by all this because from an out, outward appearance, right? Man looks at the outward appearance so often, right? From the outward appearances, Saul was the guy that should have been the, the, the dynasty, not David. But in God's economy, that's, that's not the way it works. He looks at the heart and he said, no, David, you're going to be my man. You're going to be my man. It's going to be one of your descendants. David's response is such a good model for us. Whether we find ourselves in the wake of the things of God or in the wake of tragedy, we need to remember him and praise him. James 1.17, every, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So it should become a habit for us to exalt God for all that he has done for us. So point number two for us tonight is this. Worship God in response to what he has done for you. Worship him. Exalt him in response to what he has done for you. None of us want to be like the ungrateful child who takes and takes and takes from their parents without ever showing a, a, an iota of gratitude. We don't want to be that way with God. God is gracious. God is, is gracious even to the unbeliever through, through gifts of common grace. We don't want to be ignorant to those things. We don't want to just charge ahead and, and not stop to give glory and thanks and praise to him for the gifts that he has given us and the, the good that he has done for us. In fact, I will go so far as to say he wants us to praise him and magnify him for these benefits and, and blessings that we've received. He wants to hear us praise him to other people. He wants to hear us recount all of the good things that he has done for us. And it's right and good that we should do that. So how do we do that? Well, first, that list of blessings that I mentioned in point one, 
don't just trace them back to the Lord, but go one step further from that and, and give thanks to him, specifically praise him, worship him, glorify him for those specific blessings. God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my job. What, whatever those things are in your life, go through and specifically express your gratitude and, and dependence and praise for him. Second, in your daily prayers, schedule intentional time as a part of those prayers to praise God for how he has worked in your life. A lot of people use the Acts breakdown for, for prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That first word is adoration. What does it mean to adore something? It's to worship, right? It's to give praise. It's to give glory. It's to, to, to magnify, to exalt something. So schedule time in your personal prayer life to make sure that a, a, a routine part of your prayer life is that you are worshiping God, that you are verbally praising him, specifically glorifying him for things that he has done in your life. Third, create memorials, memorials in your home to remind you of God's goodness to you and your family. You might remember that in the Old Testament, oftentimes God instructed his people to set up memorials, right? They passed through the, the Jordan River and he instructed the priest to take the stones, right? And to set up the stones so that every time somebody would pass by that memorial, they would remember what God has done. Right? And why did he want them to remember what God has done? Just to say, oh yeah, that's, that's neat. No, he wanted their, their thoughts to then be carried to, to exalting God, to praising God, to worshiping God, to glorifying God for doing that. Well, I'm not asking you to set up stones in your house. If, if that's what you want to do, go for it, do it. But uh, what I am asking you to do is, is to, to follow that pattern and set up memorials in your life. Maybe it's something that you want to frame and put up on the wall. And somebody might walk into your house and say, that is the strangest thing I've, I've ever seen framed. But that's a great way for you to say, well, can I tell you the story behind that? Because let me tell you about how God worked in my life and, and why that's significant to me. For me, I've got a couple with me uh, today that, that are memorials for me. This is a, a picture of my wife and I from our very first date. Our very first date. And her roommates came down and said, can we take a picture of you? And I thought it was strange at first, but man, this is one of my most treasured possessions that I have. At that moment, back in 2003, I mean, who, I, who knew what God was going to do through them? And five kids and everything else. And um, th maybe thankfully I, I didn't, right? But um, this is a, a memorial for me of God's faithfulness and grace and, and, and goodness in my life. And so I keep it in my Bible and, and it's there and it's a placeholder for me so that I'm regularly looking at this and, and giving him thanks for my wife and what a gift she is to me. This last week, I, I gained a new memorial. It's this. It's a hotel key. It's a, a hotel key to the Hilton Honors um, Brea Embassy Suites, room 428. And it's a memorial for me now because I was West Couch's roommate this past week. And this was the key to our room. And so this is going to stay with me as a memorial to remember West. And you say, well, that, that seems like that's a memorial about something that's, that's hard, that's, that brings pain, that brings sorrow. It does, but it's also a memorial of a man who served God with everything that he had within him. It's a memorial of a man who, Psalm 139, it says very clearly that my days were written down in, in your book when as not there was even one of them passed yet. And it's a reminder that Wes fulfilled exactly the number of days that God had for him here on this earth. And God chose to call him home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a, a memorial to me that the last thing I heard Wes doing was praying to God for the biblical gospel to go forward here at this church. 
It's the last thing that Wes did. And then he entered into eternity. And so is this painful and, and hard and in some ways, yes, but at the same time, it's still going to drive me to worship God because I'm going to remember his faithfulness. I'm going to remember those things that were good about him. I'm going to remember that, that morning that we got to spend together as pastors. So create memorials. Another thing that you can do that's not a similar line of thought, but a, a little bit different is set calendar reminders to remember significant milestones in your walk with Christ. Have them go off on your phone, buzz your watch on your wrist. What, I mean, we have so many different ways for Apple to tap us and say, hey, you need to remember something. Set those reminders, right? Salvation, date of salvation, if you, you guys remember that. Baptism, what was your date of baptism? Salvation of a loved one. If, if something significant happens, put that down. You take a guy through partners. Put that in your phone so that a year from now, that's going to pop up and you'll have a, a memorial. You'll have a reminder to, to go back and worship God for what he's done through that guy's life. Put those in your phone. Do that. Make those intentional moves to worshiping and glorifying God. These memorials, these reminders are going to be important for you because life is not always going to be rosy. Second Samuel chapter 7, life is good for David, isn't it? Second Samuel chapter 12, life is not so good for David. In the wake of his sin with Bathsheba and the death of his child, David needed to be able to look back and remember that the God that he served and loved and, and worshipped at that point was this God that he was worshipping and loving, serving in Second Samuel chapter 7. So for you and I, we're going to need these memorials and times of, of pain and times of sorrow and times of, of walking through that dark valley so that we can point to those and say, yes, but God, you are unchanging. And I remember that you are a, a good God because I can look at this and remember the way that you have brought goodness and blessing in my life in the past. Philippians 4, 8. Paul there, right after talking about not being anxious, but praying to the Lord and, and receiving in exchange the peace of God, which will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, and then he goes on and he lists a bunch of other things, and he says, think on these things. But I, I want to remind us that, that that first word out of the gate, whatever is true, there are going to be times in your life where you don't feel like worshiping God, where it doesn't seem like you can find the blessings anymore. And that's where you have to go back to a verse like Philippians 4, 8. Okay, what do I know is true about God? And these memorials, these lists, these reminders are going to be those helps for you to prompt you, to poke you, to prod you, to say, okay, no, this is true. That there are transcendent truths, transcendent, transcendent goodness transcendent things that are, are good about God that, that aren't bound by circumstance that are always going to be there for us to be able to worship God. And it's not that God needs us to worship him, but he does want us. He does desire us to worship him. Well, David goes from contemplation to worship, finally to petition in his prayer. And he does this starting in verse 25. He says, and now, O Lord God, Confirm forever, bring to fruition. And it, it's interesting, this is the imperative voice that David is using here. This is the voice of command that David is using here with God. Confirm forever, bring for, to fruition the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken and 
your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Why? Because of who God is. And so as David prays, and as David uses that imperative voice, it's it's not really presumptive on David's part any more than it would be for us to stand outside and, and at the break of dawn command the sun to rise. The sun is going to rise. We can stand out there and we can say, sun, arise, right? And I get it that the, the earth roads don't come and say the earth doesn't. I, I get that, right? But, but for us to stand out there and say, metaphorically, sun, rise, that, that doesn't make the sun rise. It's going to do it. Why? Because that's what the sun does. David is simply calling God to do what God does. He's expressing a statement of confidence in God being faithful to his character and God being unchangeable and God being immutable. And so David is boldly saying, God, I'm going to call on you to act as though I know you will act because I know who you are. And so he says, God, confirm forever. Bring this to fruition. May this be. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Just recently in our daily Bible reading, speaking of this very covenant, Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day, my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers... As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest to minister to me. Later in that passage, he repeats the same thing. If you can break my covenant with the morning and the evening, then, then you can argue that I won't be faithful. He's, he's pointing to the, the, the surety, the certainty that we can have. David's boldness is a boldness that we should have. It's not a name it and claim it, right? Because David is not asking for this for for his own motives. He's asking for this for the glory of God. He's saying, God, remain faithful to yourself. Do this for your own name, for, for your glory. And your name, verse 26, will be magnified forever. Again, we can learn from David here. It's right and good for us to pray the promises of God back to him. It's our final point tonight. Boldly pray for God to fulfill his promises in your life. Boldly, boldly pray for God to fulfill his promises in your life. Let's think through what some of those promises are. I mentioned it a minute ago, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Man, if there's a verse that we wish there was an exception clause in there, that's it, right? But instead, what? Pray, let your request be made known to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
There's a promise that we can cling to, a promise that we can hold on to, a promise that we can pray back to God. God, you said. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's the promise. God, you, you, you said, if I ask anything according to your will, now that's a big caveat there, but if I ask anything according to your will, you will hear me. James five sixteen. the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things that you fret about, all the things you worry about, all the things you feel like you need, all of these things will be added to you. Psalm 23, I mean, there's plenty there, but how about verse six? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a little book that I've got that I uh, admittedly don't turn to enough, but I pulled it off my shelf uh, today. It's called the Bible Promise Book. This is the NIV version. I, they probably have it in, in different uh, translations as well. But you go through it, and it's got the, the different category headings. And you can read through, and, and some of these are, are just what the Bible says about, but there's others that are promises, promises about peace, promises about joy, promises about righteousness, you know, this is a great resource, a great tool to have to remind yourself of what some of those promises are. The other thing you can do is just keep a, 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 a rotating list, keep a list going and, and compile those as you're doing the daily Bible reading. It's a great way when you come across in the daily Bible reading a promise from God, you know, write it down, write it down. And, you know, sometimes those promises are, are contextually bound to what's actually going on in, in the context there. Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is a wonderful text and there's some truth there that does transcend, but ultimately God is writing to who in that context? Exiled Israel, right? And he's saying to exiled Israel specifically, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you. And so that, that was the immediate context there. So we need to be careful about diving into these promises and make sure that we're, we're treating the text well, but at the same time, we can pray these, we can grab them and go back and boldly, Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may refine, receive excuse me, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we're looking for mercy and grace in time of need, what we're asking God to do is remain faithful to his promises. Faithful to the promise that he is actually working all things together for our good. Faithful to the promise that he hears our prayers. Faithful to the promise that he will provide all we need for life and godliness, faithful to his promise to sustain us, faithful to his promise that one day he will wipe away every tear from every eye, he will remove sickness and death and sin and all of its effects. So we can boldly pray for God to fulfill the promises that he's made to us. David's response to the covenant that God makes with him is a great template for us good for when we're in those seasons where life is going well, that we need to be prompted and reminded, okay, life is going well. Let's stop and, and praise God for what's going on right now. But it's also a great template for us when life is not going so well, when we are in the valley, when we are in the, the, the time of, of hurting and pain and sorrow and trials. 
Because God is still the same good, gracious, generous, and faithful God then that he always has been. And so keep that list of blessings in your life in plain view so that when you weep, you can see them and remember that God is still good, loving, and sovereign. Keep those promises at the forefront of your mind, praying that he will do as only he can and remain perfectly faithful to himself, fulfilling every promise that he has made to you. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful for the reminder to think about the good things that you've done in our lives, to to think about all the blessings that you've given to us. I pray that we would do that this week. I pray that we would be prompted even by your spirit to do that this week, to to not let the days go by and, and not worship you and glorify you for all the things that you've done. God, I pray that you'd bring to mind that the memorials that we might be able to set up in our own lives so that we would be prompted even more to, to do these things, to return praise and thanksgiving to you. God, I pray for the men in this room that are walking through a difficult stretch right now. Lord, the, the men who are hurting, the men who are sorrowful, I pray that, that even still they might be, as Paul said in, in Corinthians, Lord, that they might be sorrowful yet always rejoicing at the same time in, in who you are and, and what you have done in the past and what you have promised to do still in the future. Lord, may we be men that are found grateful, men that are found thankful, men that are found, Lord, fulfilling that call to, to, to glorify you, to worship you with everything that we are. For your praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen.